Welcome to this special episode of the Podcast of Tech EU. This episode is kindly sponsored by Google Cloud for Startups and is the first part of an exclusive interview series with prominent people in tech, recorded live at Slash 2019. I am Andrew Degler, the host and producer of the Tech EU podcast. The conference is not over yet, but we already wanted to start sharing the great conversations that we have been having in our podcast booth. And if you have not been to the conference, check out the featured image of this episode on TechEU to get an idea of what it looks like. Today, I wanted to run two interviews with very different but equally interesting people. First is Sophia Benz, the partner at the VC Atomico. And the second is Marcus Willig, uh, the founder and CEO of the Estonian Unicorn Bolt. And to kick things off, I will give the floor to Natalie Novik, our research lead and the co-host of this podcast, who talked to Sophia on the first morning of the conference. Good morning. We're here with Sophia Benz from a partner at Atomico. You've had such an incredible career starting with Spotify and marketing and then now moving as the head of the scouting program at Atomico and uh, as a partner there. Um, so it's such a pleasure for you to join us today at Slush. So thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. Oh, wonderful. So your time at Slush started early, started um, early this morning, but also last evening where you were part of a panel at the Inclusive um, talking about diversity in venture capital and diversity in investment. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, some of the themes that you're speaking about, because Atomico is really special in that they've really prioritized diversity as a real pillar of their program. Yeah, sure. No, it was a really great start to my slush week. On the panel, we spoke about what we're seeing now. And my reflection were that I think we've been... So when I joined Spotify back in 2007 and we were VC-backed, none of them were talking about diversity or asking how many women on the management team, etc. So that was my starting point, that it was zero interest in this field to now where I see, you know, a lot is happening. And I think... You know, last year and even the year before, I felt like we we acknowledged the problem. We um, saw it based on the data with the report that we have seen now for many years, which in itself is fairly depressing, to be honest. I mean, it really breaks my heart that the numbers look so bad and that it's not happening faster change. I mean, so I think from like acknowledging that it's here to now actually, you know, talking about what are some of the actions, what are some of the concrete things that we can do in our day to day job? That will move the needle. Uh, everything from like the, you know, how to monitor your pipeline, how to be more accessible, how to put um, your role as an investor. You 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 can uh, put pressure on the entrepreneur, and and actually we have added in our um, term sheet that you need to have a diversity plan in in place. And if you don't, we can point you to a place uh, or report where actually it, it says how to create one. So we want for no one to be able to say, like, I don't know how to go about it because we have now created a place for you to find the information and, and go and do it. Yeah. And and this is actually an area of uh, diversity is something that elite VCs like Atomico really can be role models for the industry. That's yeah, I'm, I'm not saying that we are the best, but I'm definitely proud of that. We are 
thinking about it and we're talking about it. And the report that we did last year, I think, was a great starting point. And whenever I get a chance, I, I bring it and I, I put it in people's hands and I talk about it. And, and I also want to give kudos to the LPs we have in the Nordic region because the pension funds there are really on it. So last week I attended a long full day workshop on diversity and inclusion and we shared best practices. And I think it needs to come from all different levels in the ecosystem. So starting from the top and then to us, the VCs, and then to the founders, and then to the management teams, etc. Mm -hmm. And kind of talking a little bit about all the different levels of the ecosystem, you lead scouting activities at Atomico, really trying to bring in new voices and kind of different types of people into the VC career. Yes. Um, and I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about this program, because it is really special in Europe, and um, it, we haven't heard too much of, of, about it. It's the, the first year or so is over. So why don't you tell, begin, tell us a little bit about the scouting program. Yeah, and, it, and it, it's very close to my heart. And it came about because I started angel investing after I had my um, years at Spotify. And I, I just felt like there are too few women out there. And a lot of people seem to think that it's super hard and they don't know how to go about it. And there's little to read and it's not so easy to, to get started. So one of the things that I care a lot about is to make angel investing more kind of demystify it a bit and make it more accessible. And I think more people uh, should be involved. So I want to spark uh, interest and I want to inspire people to come and join me and all of the other great angels in Europe. So the program works uh, in the way that we have um, defined 12 people in our core geographies this first year mm -hmm. that have been given uh, 100K to invest. They <clears throat> have decided themselves what to invest in. And we've seen a great activity and I'm very impressed with uh, the angels so far. I will get back to you on like a more full report sure. on the trends that we've seen. But so far, majority of the investments have been in kind of impact or climate tech type of companies, which I think is a very interesting trend. Yeah, and that and that's really exciting, but also very pertinent to the, the global situation that, that we're having right now. Yeah, absolutely. A majority of the people are fairly young in the program. So I think for me, I have a massive anxiety around climate change, and I feel like we are not acting fast enough. Mm -hmm. And I think that... The younger, the even younger generation are also feeling that concern in a kind of more acute, acute and urgent way than others. Oh, that's that's really exciting. And when kind of Atomico selects selects your scouts and kind of sends them out, what kind of things are are you telling them or kind of instructing them for how they should be looking at angel investing? So we are starting with picking people that we see are kind of standing. Um, deeply rooted in the uh, local ecosystems and they're close to sort of the grassroots movement and see what's going on, know what's happening and who's a good operator and have a good deal flow and, and, and a big network. Mm -hmm. But I try not to kind of give them directions. I rather want to give them like, you know, here's the funds and here are some thoughts around how to think about angel investing. But I don't want to color their view on what to pick because one of the reasons we're doing this is to, you know, involve more people from underrepresented groups so that we can reach more pockets of talents mm -hmm. and drive change through the diverse perspectives and, and experiences that they bring to the table that we normally don't have access to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that's really, really exciting. And something um, that really stands out about your experience as an angel investor is that you've been kind of going through the process a number of different times. You have over 30 angel investments That's and correct. you have a very unique perspective about how you go about sourcing um, and 
identifying really um, specific founders and specific industries to focus on. Um, I wonder if you could share that a little bit, um, kind of share your knowledge to other prospective angels out there. What are some of the things that you're looking for um, when it comes to um, writing that first check for a company? So I normally look at what is the problem they're trying to solve? And is it a problem that I agree with and can see? And if there are any macro trends that are kind of supporting that this is something that needs to be solved. And then if the team is the right team to do this and taking a company from like a PowerPoint type of stage to an IPO in the end, uh, ideally. So um, team, the problem they're trying to solve, the ways they're thinking about it, um, their capabilities of communicating their story in a compelling way. And this is my communications and marketing background uh, yeah. kicking in. But I think it is really important. And, you know, there's a quote from Bill Gates and he says, if I was down to my last dollar, I would spend it on PR. Okay. And the reason why I think it is important is because, A, you want to make the users understand really fast and in an easy way why you matter to them and why they should be a product or a service that the users need and want to use. And then B, you need to be able to communicate your story in a compelling way when you're fundraising. And that's not um, a little task. It can be what makes or breaks a company. Mm -hmm. So the capabilities of, of communicating and telling the story in a good, concise way. And then also uh, if they have a good network of talented people. And here, if you are someone who have uh, had a startup journey before or have started a company on your own, normally they have a network of talented people like developers and operators and people that they want to hire. Uh, that is also something that kind of adds. And, and that's also integral to telling your story because once you're able to d develop this narrative about why this is such a compelling problem and why you're the team that should be able to solve the problem you can help not only bring on investment, but also bring on those team members that are going to help see this vision through. Yes, absolutely. And like my years at Spotify, the tech team that we hired in the early days was, I mean, incredible. And, and some of them had uh, their own kind of fan following and Wikipedia entries. So because we hired such sort of high quality superstar developers early on, mm. that created like a bus and a lot of other un engineers wanted to join because they understood that they could work on hard problems with really smart people. Mm. And you want to create that environment. Mm -hmm. And especially at the angel stage or the early stage, the team is such an important part of that, of that journey and yeah, that company. Absolutely. Because in the early stage, you don't have much data or sometimes none. Mm. So you really need to think about what is the thing they're trying to build, what is the vision, and what's the team set up, and what are the kind of things happening in the external world that might support or might not support this. And it's, it's kind of a, a gut feeling, angel investing. Like there's a level of science that you have to be a little bit uncomfortable with. Right? Yeah, I think someone said like, oh, is it a science or art? And I think it's probably a combination of both. But for me, I'm, I'm definitely using my intuition and gut feel, as you say, or experience of meeting lots and lots of people, mm. uh, that kicks in. And I also, you know, selfishly think about, I want to work with people that I connect with and that I like and that yeah. I believe in and respect and feel that I can learn from. So I'm kind of sourcing from that perspective as well. Great, great. And um, kind of 
let's talk a little bit about some of the industries that that we should be on looking at. Uh, you have a number of of industries that that you're really excited about, and today Atomico is launching the State of European Tech, kind of looking at some of the different trends over the past year. But if we want to look into 2020, what are some of the industries that we should be focused on that we should be looking at for the future? Yeah, so I I think. Companies that have that are mission-led are interesting for many reasons. One is actually coming back to what we talked about before. When you are a mission-led company, you have the capability to attract talent that are hungry to make change, that are driven by their purpose and not their kind of salary or, or bonus levels. And you uh, are working on a problem that is probably massive if it's agriculture or food or transportation. So within the big problems, we see that the big opportunities lies. So I'm thinking mission-led companies tackling big problems, you can almost kind of map them out according to the SDG goals. Mm -hmm. And those for me are super interesting. And for, for me personally, I tend to gear towards health tech. I think it's really interesting and a lot of things are happening and especially femtech. Mm -hmm. We see lots of strong female founders that are building products and services that they wanted that no one had thought about. Mm -hmm. And I think that is also showing that we have had majority of founders being men building products and services for men. Now there's a whole new wave, a new generation of female founders building and creating things you know, by women for women. Right. And it kind of goes back to our conversation earlier about diversity and that these types of products, there's always some sort of need, but not necessarily the capital behind them. Yeah. So it's kind of a, a really open landscape for some really exciting new things to be developed. Yeah. No, I'm very pumped about it, both from like a consumer perspective and as an investor. Uh, can you talk a little bit about some of the, the companies that are kind of catching your eyes right now? Yeah, sure. So on the femtech theme, uh, later today, I'm going to be on stage and talk to Andrea Barica from O School. Mm -hmm. She's doing an incredible thing with, with O School and creating a sex education platform, which is very much needed. Uh, and also Valentina, who is running Day, and she had created a CBD coated tampon that is fighting, you know, pain relieving, giving us pain relief where we actually need it. Mm -hmm. and kind of rethinking gynecology because it's a totally underserved area. Mm -hmm. I read somewhere that the um, tool you use when you go to the gynecologist called speculum has not been reinvented since 1864. Wow. So I think that we have a lot to do. Yeah, and lots of industries are kind of primed for, for disruption. Yes. And speaking about this mission-led companies and going back to the um, sustainable development goals that you mentioned earlier, uh, Companies that are working on those sorts of problems, it's a very clear, huge problem, but a very clear am ambition there. So what does it communicate to you as an investor to see founders working on these really tough challenges, but have kind of global implications? You know, it tells me that they are um, fearless in a way, because, you know, the bigger the problem, it, it's probably easier to build like a local dry cleaning uh, service or something, but tackling, you know, food supply or a new way to farm or uh, transport people mm -hmm. is a much more complex problem to solve that involves different parts of society to regulate properly around it. Mm -hmm. um, but I mean, I, I think it's fascinating how we now can look at different new sources of protein from insects or fermented mushrooms and, um, 
Memphis meet that Atomic have invested in. Mm. So I think we'll probably look back to this time and be like, wow, you guys actually ate meat that was coming from living animals and you were drinking water out of single-use plastic bottles. I mean, I think we'll really look at this time and be like, wow. Yeah. And the the future is is really exciting. And and VC has a really important role to play in supporting those innovations. And that can be really challenging also because sometimes you, the market might not exist yet or kind of really knowing kind of what it actually takes to solve these problems um, can be really hard. So how do you think the venture capital landscape is going to change to kind of address those kind of very big issue problems? Yeah, that's a great one. I think As a VC, you need to probably do your homework and properly think about what is the type of future that we want to see? What do we want to back? And then go from there. And um, therefore, I think it's important yeah, to kind of understand the responsibility you have as an investor. For me, it's one of the most exciting things about this job. I feel like we can back and boost people that we believe will build a better future for all of us. If it is Lilium that are creating flying vehicles or if it's uh, lab-grown meat with uh, Memphis meat, etc. But it's thrilling to think about the impact that these companies can have when they reach scale. Right. And because all investment is is, is kind of taking a risk, but seeing a, a SaaS product with kind of clear MMR, you kind of know where that's going. But thinking about an entirely new landscape of kind of lab-grown meat or flying cars, that that is a completely new and kind of much, much more riskier venture in some ways. But the consequences of that are, are so exciting. Yes. And much bigger than you can expect. And it takes probably longer for some of them. It's what we call frontier tech and something that I'm super excited about. Wonderful. So um, we're here at Slush. What number, how many Slushes have you been to before this one? I think this is my fifth year at Slush. Okay. And what are some of the the companies uh, that that you're most excited to see here? And I'm kind of thinking about this frontier tech, this future tech, um, kind of going into the next years. What are some of the, the areas that kind of have the most promise for you? I'm looking today. I'm looking forward to see Tom uh, on stage presenting the report, obviously. And then uh, there is a session with the Oatly founder, mm-hmm. which I think is a fascinating product, and they have a very inspiring vision for the future. So I look forward to listen to him. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the femtech panel, I look forward to, and then try and catch people in the breaks and, and uh, attend as many events as possible. Wonderful. And kind of thinking about founders, how, how they strategize their time at an event like this and crafting the story and the narrative, what are some of the ways that they can kind of best position themselves when you go to such an overwhelming event like Slush? Yeah, I think it's good to do a bit of thinking on who do I want to make sure to have time with and what are my goals with the meetings. Um, I mean, you can come and, and just come for, you know, inspiration only and go and look in all the different monitors and listen to sessions. Or you can actually create a schedule where you get to meet some of the most interesting, both founders and investors. So it depends on where you're coming from, but everyone is here. So it's just to kind of carve out what you need. Yeah, and it, it's such a wonderful way to kind of end the the year, um, especially with so much excitement happening and the launch of the report, as you mentioned. Yeah, no, it's great. And I'm so lucky to have so many amazing and fun people in my industry that, you know, throughout these days, it feels like we're on some sort of camp or something. <laughs> lots of partying and lots of fun and lots of good discussions and meetings and 
sessions being held. So I feel like we're extremely productive. <laughs> Wonderful. And kind of part of that is that industry in that camp is bringing new people along as, as through the scout program. So when do you think we'll hear um, the next developments um, from the program? Yeah, fairly soon, actually, within weeks, I would say. Okay, yeah. so everyone should should be on the lookout for that. Um, and in terms of Atomico, is there anything else that should be on our horizon? Um, any announcements or things that we should be looking out for? I think 12 o'clock today, the report. That's the first one. Wonderful. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much, Sophia, for chatting with us um, and uh, the Techie podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Once again, thanks a lot to Sophia for taking the time to talk. And now it is time to move on to the next conversation. Our second guest today is supposedly the youngest European unicorn founder, and I will let him introduce himself. I'm Marcus Willig, uh, founder and CEO at Bolt. Right. So what is Bolt? Bolt is the largest European mobility platform. So we are across uh, 35 countries. We have more than 25 million people. And we offer a number of products from ride hailing, where we're the biggest European player. We have scooter sharing in the first 10 cities. And now we're rolling out food delivery as well. And uh, you used to be known as a Taxify. Why did you change the name, first of all? Well, we, we started with taxis six years ago in Estonia. Right. Uh, and uh, we grew with that to, to dozens of countries. But uh, what we then realized was that it's not enough to solve urban transport only with taxis, that you need to have other services as well. So when we started expanding to scooters and motorcycles and food delivery, it was, uh, it was about time to change the name to something more universal. Why bold, though? There are at least three companies that do something uh, about uh, uh, urban mobility that are called bold. Well, actually, we see bold reflects our vision for urban mobility the best, which on one hand, it resembles speed. And uh, right. we think that urban transport should be actually fast and you shouldn't be sitting in traffic. And the other important bit is electricity because we see that combustion engine cars are not sustainable anymore. And uh, we're actually using both electric scooters and other means to transition away from that. Right, that makes sense. Okay, so for the further discussion, let's start from the recent news and then come uh, uh, to actual uh, ride-sharing and then to e-scooters. So first of all, let's talk about the impact fund that you just announced. What is it about? What is it for? Where the decision comes? Uh, can you just uh, give a quick rundown? So... Overall, we see what we're doing as a mobility platform is that we want to transition away from people owning privately these hundreds of millions of, of combustion cars and uh, move on to shared networks where right. you would have all of these shared bikes, uh, electric scooters, cars in a much more sustainable way for people to move. Right. But that's long term. And we need to have some sort of impact on the climate also today, which is why we announced voluntarily that we'll start to offset all our millions and millions of rides across Europe. So all of our rides that you do now on the platform are carbon neutral. Right. So, so we're investing millions of euros into carbon offsetting for various projects, like supporting uh, energy generation in, in Africa or solar or wind power projects and so on. So, so that's a big initiative for us. On top of that, what's included is that we're, again, transitioning to electric cars, uh, transitioning to smaller lightweight vehicles. So, so it's, a, it's a big plan for us over the next five years to transition to sustainable transport. Right, this is interesting. Okay, so let's talk about the core business, so uh, ride-hailing. How, how has it been going for you, and uh, are you actually profitable at all? Or, or can you be profitable? Can this business be profitable? Well, ride-hailing fundamentally is not a winner-take-all market. And I think that's one of the big errors many investors made, which was that they expected there was going to be one global winner, like there was with Facebook or Google. 
But this is a very different city-by-city business. And uh, it's actually clear that you will have at least two companies in every major market. Like in the US, you have Lyft and Uber. And in Europe now, you have, you have us and Uber uh, in a more stable configuration. So you don't have just one player who dictates all the terms. And uh, we're actually really well on track with that. We're now in 35 countries. Most of right. them were the leading player. And uh, we actually have vast majority of our countries in a sustainable state, meaning they're either break-even or profitable. So, so there's no question for us that there's a way to operate ride-hailing in a profitable way. So are you actually going to become profitable in general at some point? Or, is it, or are you just going to keep growing and keep investing more in growth uh, without uh, getting profitable at all? Well, we, we could be growing today without burning money. Uh, we just okay. see that it makes sense to invest in growth because there's such a big opportunity ahead. But uh, that's because it's pretty unique to us. Uh, from day one, we've been really focused on being frugal as a company. So everything we do is around cost efficiency because we believe that if we're more efficient as a platform, then that results in also lower prices for customers. Uh, and, and that's part of our company DNA. Uh, if that wasn't the case, we would not be in a position to be sustainable if we wanted to. Is that something that you have lower price uh, for customers and maybe lower fees for uh, drivers? Well, ultimately, we see that if you can offer better pay for drivers, then that attracts most of the drivers to your platform, which means that if you have more drivers, you also have better arrival times. So uh, that it's a very simple thing. If, if you mm -hmm. pay drivers better, you have the best arrival times, and you also have the best pricing for customers because we're very cost-efficient as a company. And if you do those two things, we, we believe that's the platform that will win. So is that something what, that, that, that you do? Can you actually say that you pay drivers better than the rivals and that your prices for the rides are lower than the rivals? Exactly. And we have that going in, in 35 countries. So most of the countries we're in, we always have better pay on a per-trip basis than any other player out there. Okay, but I mean... As far as I understand, uh, ride hailing is uh, the margins in ride hailing are, are really, really thin. So how can you pull it off? Again, it starts off from the whole organization you have. Right. Uh, so if you take an example of, of some of our U.S. friends, they've raised more than 20 billion. And uh, of course, that creates a certain culture where you don't really worry about costs. You worry about how do we grow as fast as possible? You know, you hire hundreds of people to move faster, but it doesn't necessarily create a very sustainable business. Uh, well, we came from the other end. We started in Estonia. We didn't have access to much funding. And we, we approached this from, you know, how do we spend as little money as possible and build a sustainable business? And now, six years in, it's, it's very clear that we've ended up with two completely different companies. Yeah, absolutely. And I think in one of the interviews you mentioned uh, that you also cut costs by automating things like checking drivers' IDs. How is that working for you? Well, overall, we have more than half a million drivers on the platform. True. And uh, it's extremely hard to manage all of that uh, manually. So you need to invest in automation of how do you check the quality of those drivers and, and uh, customer support and many other areas, which is enabling us to be as efficient as we are. But how can you automate this? This is like a security-related question. This is really something important. How can you make it automated? You have great tools automated? out there that can automate document verification even better than what, what humans can do. And how about security inspections? Do you carry, on that, carry out uh, those? Every time a driver gets onboarded to the platform, right. they need to provide all the documents required by that city. So, of course, we do all the necessary checks. Right. And how does, uh, how does rollout work for you? Like when you want to roll out a new city, what do, so what do you do? Do you have the playbook already? We're now in 35 countries, more than 150 cities. So we've been doing this for a long time. Uh, so uh, again, we've tried to automate as much as possible. So most of the times we can launch a new city with just two or three people. Nice. So it's a very, very lightweight. Do you now talk to the authorities before entering the city? That, that's been a core part of why we're successful in Europe uh, to begin with. 
because what, what we see is that you need to actually build long-term relations with cities. Otherwise, they are not very happy to have you there as a partner long-term. Right. Okay, from ride-hailing to my favorite topic of e-scooters. Now, uh, also you said before that uh, the e-scooters business is not really profitable and might not ever become profitable. Why do this at all then? Why did you want to diversify in this? It starts off from what is urban transport going to look like in 10 years. Okay. And it's clear there's not going to be more cars. Probably there's going not. to be more public transport, more lightweight vehicles like bikes and electric scooters. So it's clear it's going to be a big part of urban transport, but that doesn't mean it's necessarily going to be a great business on its own. So uh, how we think about it is that uh, we will just be offering some services for free or, or at very low cost for us, right. uh, like electric scooters, but, uh, but they are really important for the city and it still makes sense for us to have them on the platform. So we would have more value for our customers and then hopefully they will also take more rides uh, on the ride-sharing service, which we know is, is a sustainable business for us. Right. So basically for you, this is a kind of a vehicle to raise brand awareness in a way. Well, it's, it's more about creating more value for people so that if they need to go somewhere, then they know that Bolt has all the options for them how to move. And right. they open the app and, you know, sometimes they take a scooter, sometimes they might take a car. So you basically want to become this sort of a one-stop shop for uh, urban mobility. Well, in many ways, where we are. Right. And uh, how does it uh, work uh, together with the uh, trend of uh, mobility as a service uh, that's uh, coming up in a lot of locations, including here in Finland? I think it's uh, exactly it starts from there that in the future we don't expect everybody will need to buy a car and maintain their all the parking and fueling and all of it that, that comes with that but rather people can use one app and get around with public transport bicycles you know car on demand when they need one uh, and it's much more efficient for both the consumer and the city but do you want it necessarily to be your app or are you okay with being integrated into another app Well, we, we see that we're already the largest European mobility platform. We, we have more than 25 million people using us for, for ride-sharing and scooters. So uh, we, we expect that we will be the best position to build the, the, really the best product here. Okay. And do you have a, sort of a roadmap? Like, what do you want to build in the future? Well, the, the things I mentioned today are, are some of the core pillars. But, mm -hmm. of course, there's a lot of room to expand on that. Uh, what we're, for example, looking at is, uh, is what we can do with, uh, with minibuses. Uh, especially relevant in Africa, so we can bring down the price point substantially uh, and just make it more uh, more affordable for more people. Okay, this is interesting. And I also had like a very uh, particular question about uh, e-scooters. So I I'm Ukrainian myself, so and I just saw uh, news uh, that uh, uh, you may be uh, rolling out uh, e-scooters in Kiev soon. Why in the winter? Well, overall, for us, it's, it's not that much a question of the season. Uh, it, it's rather that we see in some cities like Copenhagen, people are bicycling, uh, using bicycles all year round. So, uh, so we do see that it's a, it's a growing shift and you, you can actually have these micro-mobility vehicles out there uh, regardless of the season. I mean, you have been to Kiev, have you not? Yes, of course. Do you imagine uh, the winter in Kiev? Well, I'm from Tallinn, so it's... Uh, <laughs> It's different. I have to tell you, it's different. You can't really use an e-scooter safely when there is black ice or snow on the roads. Again, when we look at Copenhagen or Estonia as well, even though when you have snow and you have really ice and whatnot, we still see there's a fair amount of trips that are best done with smaller vehicles versus cars. Right. That's interesting. And are you also investing in R&D in terms of e-scooters? Like, are you building your own e-scooter that will be better than off-the-shelf things? We, we actually are. So, uh, as with everybody else, we started off with regular retail scooters. Right. You, can, you can just buy from existing manufacturers. But long-term, we see it makes sense for us to uh, 
fully own the supply chain and, and actually build a scooter really customized for, for the service. Uh, what else, like, uh, what are your R&D activities that you can uh, talk about? Autonomous driving is something that comes up very often, but we've actually been very clear that we don't intend to, to invest substantially into that uh, because we believe the technology is still out five to ten years uh, before it really becomes uh, available properly for, for ride hailing in urban environments. Right. So, so rather what we want to do there is partner with, with companies who do the, the, the R&D versus actually build this out ourselves fully. Are you already uh, like in talks with uh, these companies? Well, we've been in talks with most of the autonomous uh, driving companies out there, uh, but it's still very early. So that's why today we're more focused on scooters, for example. Right. And I know that you also like withdrew uh, from the Paris market when it got a bit too hot and unfriendly uh, out there. Are you going to get back at some point? How we see it is that uh, you need to have a mix of things right uh, for scooters to be successful true, in a city. True. Uh, one is uh, definitely just overall the, the theft and the vandalism, uh, which we just saw was uh, was extremely bad in Paris over the over the past year, due to to, to many reasons. Uh, but we expect that with new models of scooters that are more sustainable, uh, we will be coming back there as well. Right. And in terms of general urban mobility revolution, if we can uh, call it this. Uh, do you think that this is something that Europe can be a leader in? It's uh, pretty clear that Europe in many ways is already the leader in, in urban mobility. So when you look at the uh, electric scooter sharing market, uh, for example, now, then uh, the biggest market for that is in Europe and, uh, and will be going forward as well. So, so I think we will see more and more innovation coming from European companies in the mobility sector. Right. And uh, how about, uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, uh, your like personal uh, journey. So... How, how, how has it been uh, for you so far? It's been, what, a few years uh, from starting the company to becoming a unicorn. What, uh, what sort of learnings have you, have you got so far? I started the company when I was uh, 19, so right. straight out of high school, uh, with no prior experience working anywhere else. So uh, for me, this has, of course, been a massive learning over the last few years. But I see it actually gives more confidence to more entrepreneurs in Estonia that... Uh, Hey, if Marcus could do it, then why not me? <laughs> so I, I hope this will serve as a good example. Right. And uh, how big is the company right now? So we are uh, 35 countries and then 1,400 people. 1,400 people. Uh, are most of them in Tallinn? Actually, we have an office in every single country we're in. So, right. so it's, it's a very distributed team. Every team is like a local startup. Uh, but uh, other than that, we have about a quarter of the company in Estonia. Are there any particular markets that you are focusing on? Uh, Europe the, and Africa is, is the geographic focus, but within that, there's so much room for us still to expand. Uh, why, uh, why these markets? Why not the US? Why not Southeast Asia or anything else? Because, again, we see that fundamentally ride-hailing is going to be a two-player market in most cities. So uh, unless you can be either the, the first or the second one, uh, mm -hmm. you will not have good enough arrival times. So that means that people will just over time move away to other platforms where you can get a car faster and, and more efficiently. So, so that's a key criteria for us. Right. And what about African market? How is it different uh, from Europe? Uh, like, how, what, what do you do there differently than you did here? There's a number of differences. Uh, for example, payment methods are, are, are drastically different. So we have integrated with mobile wallets there. So people right. can, can pay, for example, with M-Pesa. Uh, cash is a big part. Um, and another aspect is safety, which is a much bigger worry in many of the, uh, many of the African cities versus Europe. 
And uh, mapping actually is a, is a big topic as well because uh, Google Maps just unfortunately does not work well in, in all of these countries we operate in. So we're doing substantial investments there to improve the accuracy of the, for example, addresses and the arrival time uh, estimates and so on. So you actually have to build your own mapping solutions in a way? In some of these aspects, yes. This is interesting. Are you going to open them up then? At some point, uh, we're already contributing back some of the work we're doing to OpenStreetMaps, so it, it benefits everyone. Right. This is great. Okay, Marcus, thank you so much. That's it for my questions. Uh, thanks a lot for taking the time, and good luck. Thanks for having me. This is it for today's interview special episode. I hope you liked the first two conversations and I can assure you that there is more where they come from. Expect to hear a few more interviews from Slush on this show over the next few weeks. Audio engineering for this podcast is done by SoundPulse, that is sound-pulse.com. Please feel free to email us with any questions, suggestions, and opinions at Andri at TechEU and Natalie at TechEU. Thank you for listening, enjoy the rest of the week, and talk to you soon. Bye-bye. 